The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation I'm pretty sure school is officially out everywhere now. My son had a couple of snow days, but he's finally wrapped things up. Um, And that really means only one thing for the rising seniors who are listening in, and that is that you should be starting to work on your applications. Your parents are saying that. Your guidance counselor may have said that before you headed off for summer break, and now I am saying it to you. And we are going to say this to you all summer long um, because I want to remind you all we're introducing our Schools Out Application Workshop Series. Um, It's going to debut on our show, our next show, which is going to air on June 30th. Um, Every week we're going to discuss and advise all of you listeners who are going to be going through the process of actually filling out applications on different aspects of the admission and financial aid process. We're going to give you a timeline that you can follow. We're going to give you homework assignments to complete. Uh, So it'll be almost like working with us, but you have to tune in in order to check it out. Um, This work is really part of our larger segment called Office Hours, and that's time we're going to use to address what's most pressing in admissions and financial aid right now, including your listener questions. Um, And we're going to be doing that a little bit later in the show. So we'll have office hours here towards the end. But first, I'm excited to welcome Sean Quinn, who is Director of Tutoring for Arbor Bridge, which is a a tutoring and test prep company um, with whom we work very closely. And he's coming to the show today to give us some real answers to all of the myths surrounding the ACT versus the SAT. Welcome, Sean. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you here. And just so our listeners are aware, um, you not only do you uh, tutor yourself, you do some tutoring yourself, but you also match students um, with the tutors that you guys have at Arbor Bridge, correct? Yes, that's correct. And I I work with with counselors like yourself to um, speak with families and give them the best testing plan. Got it. Um, so we, like I said, at College Coach, we work with Arbor Bridge um, and think they're great. And I think that Sean is a great person to talk us through um, kind of all the myth-busting that we're hoping to do today uh, around the ACT and the SAT. And with that in mind, why don't we start with the first myth? And um, this is certainly one that I hear a lot and talk about a bit. Um, and that is the idea that the ACT and the SAT are completely different tests. And what would you say to that? Do you think that's true or not much truth to that? Yes, well, Beth, you know, the SAT and ACT used to have significant differences. Um, the SAT had the infamous archaic vocabulary that everyone hated, for example. Yep. 
that has mostly changed with the redesigned SAT. The two tests are now no longer dramatically different. This is important because choosing which test has been a source of anxiety or, or dread for a lot of students. So now that the tests have gotten much closer in content and format, there should be hopefully less anxiety about which is a better test for your student, and switching between tests, if necessary, is not such a major change. Preparing Got for it. one test will help you on the other. Got it. Okay. And um, maybe what we, you know, ultimately, I don't, we're not going to really have time to get into how you choose, and it's something we have talked about before, but maybe you can come back on another show and we can help people think through, because now it seems like it's going to be a little bit trickier to choose which one is really the best one for you if they're fairly similar. Yeah, yeah I think ultimately it, it comes down to taking diagnostics in both tests to mm-hmm. see which is a better fit for each student, but there are a couple differences to consider as well. Okay. Um, well, so actually, before we get into those, let me ask you this. This is a question I get a lot, and I know my answer to it, but um, what do you think about this idea that students should take both official tests, so go to the testing place, sign up, pay their money, and take an official SAT and take an official ACT? Yeah, I think, you know, taking both tests officially for the first time, I think, could lead to a lot, a lot of anxiety for the student. And that, that you know, there, there's going to be anxiety throughout this testing process anyway. So I think it's important to uh, alleviate what, what we can. Um, so I think it's important to experiment in the diagnostic phase to take practice tests in both tests and then decide which is a better fit and prepare only for one test. Yeah, I really agree with that. That would be an answer I would give family as well, not only because there's a lot of effort involved um, and time and money in prepping for a test, um, but also because the colleges are not looking for students to take both the SAT and the ACT. Figure out the one that's best for you and then focus exclusively on that one because from an admissions perspective, having both doesn't give you some kind of an edge. Um, Once the schools have determined that your testing is where it should be, they're moving on. They're not saying, well, gee, this is a great score on the ACT, but I wish that I could have seen an SAT score too. Like that's never part of the conversation. So, um, All right, so then here's another one that I'm getting a lot. So for those listeners who are maybe new to the show or new to the college process and don't really know much, the SAT um, introduced a new test a couple of months ago. And the prevailing wisdom or the thing that a lot of people have been saying is, Right now, you just want to stick to the the ACT. You don't even want to bother with the new SAT. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that is largely true this year. Um, The SAT has only released four practice tests. So one thing to consider is that there may not be enough released tests to really practice to the point where a student is feeling confident and in command of the test whereas the ACT has has changed very little this year. The essay has changed um, to incorporate three perspectives, and the science section has changed slightly to have um, six passages instead of seven. But the ACT is is largely the same test. And so there are far more practice tests available and materials to prepare for that test. Um, Additionally, we don't know yet what the SAT scores really mean. Um, about a month ago, the, the concordance tables were released, which 
tell us what the new SAT scores, how they compare to the old SAT scores, and how they compare in theory to the ACT. Mm-hmm. But the ACT as an organization has, has not signed off on, on, on those comparisons. And so we don't really know how they compare yet. And, and more importantly, we don't know how college admissions will view the new SAT scores this year. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big one. And I know that we've been spending a lot of time trying to track down the new policies at different schools. Are they going to be accepting the old SAT? Are they going to, they're all going to be accepting the new SAT, but what does that mean for the old SAT? Um, In general, we're finding that they are going to accept either test, but they're not going to mix and match both tests together. So if they are schools that take you know, your best math score, your best critical reading score, and your best writing score, they're not going to be doing that because the two tests are different. So there isn't a lot of mix and match between that. And then um, there are a lot of schools that actually haven't figured out what their policy is going to be yet. In fact, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, an admissions rep from Connecticut College, and she said as much. They just, they don't know enough yet to say. So it does seem to me like, Barring a real um, disastrous, you know, fit with the ACT, that the um, that the ACT is probably the better option for students to kind of avoid all of that confusion. Um, have you seen it where there's there are students that just they they can't seem to manage the ACT, so you are directing them to the SAT? Yes, there there are a few cases where I think the the new SAT might be a better fit. Um, for students that might be scoring significantly higher on their SAT diagnostic than on an ACT diagnostic, I think that is, is not a bad route to go, especially if they're scoring on the higher end on the SAT, so they might not need as many practice tests. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple other things that are considerations that um, if the speed of the ACT, so the ACT reading and science sections have far less time per question than on the SAT reading section. Mm -hmm. So you have over a minute per question on the SAT where it's about 40 to 50 seconds per question on the ACT. So sometimes that timing really affects students and they they aren't able to finish reading. So that's an important consideration um, to maybe go with the the SAT. Also on on, um, the ACT, there is a science section that can sometimes be problematic for students. So, so that's another consideration that might lead someone to choose the SAT this year. Right. And so, I, again, I think this points out the what we face every single day talking about admissions, talking about college financial aid, um, co- talking about just college finance in general, and I'm sure that you face in the test prep world, which is rarely can you say, without exception, you need to take this test. Every student should take this test, right? Because there are always going to be exceptions. There are always going to be nuances um, that affect each student differently. So, Anytime that you have someone who tells you, oh, this is the way you have to go, you need to respectfully almost ignore them and say, well, that's great advice. We're going to look into what's right for um, our child or as the applicant, you're going to look into what's right for yourself because um, it's almost never black and white. Yeah, Um, I agree totally. And now that the tests are more similar than ever, I think it's really important to take diagnostics in both before deciding on a test because... There's no longer um, big differences that can help you predict which might be a better test beforehand. 
Right, right. And now just um, in terms of these diagnostics, people may be wondering, you know, how do I take a diagnostic? That's something you guys do. And, and is that, that's a free service that you offer, correct? Yes, that's right. We, we offer uh, free diagnostics that are proctored with a live proctor over Skype at any time that's convenient for the student. Right, which is really awesome. Um, so you're taking it in a, in a setting that most closely or more closely mimics an actual test setting than if, say, you just kind of are taking it at your kitchen table. Um, so that, that's a, a pretty cool thing that you guys do. Um, so let's move on to another myth, which is, um, and, and I've seen this in action, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I, I think this is a myth, um, and the idea that the SAT and the ACT are really insurmountable, that some kids really just don't test well, and as a result, there's no way for them to improve their scores. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there, there are certainly, you know, students that, um, you know, have traditionally done poorly on standardized testing, and it is a challenge for them for, you know, having, you know, maybe they have nerves on test day, um, or maybe they're just not their best on standardized testing in general. But I definitely think that every student can perform better than than they do on their diagnostic with some form of preparation, Um, whether that be um, self-study, you know, there are free resources on Khan Academy. Um, or a group class, or working with a one-on-one tutor, there are multiple forms of, of preparation, and I think um, any any one of those will help a student do better than they do initially on the diagnostic. Yeah, I just find that, as with anything, right, so sometimes you see these students who are great in school, and there's a total disconnect when you look at your their tests and or their test scores, and I always ask, well, you know, what did you do to prep for the tests? And often it's totally different than what they do to prep for their schoolwork. So I'm always encouraging them, well, why don't you just try to apply the same stuff that you apply to your schoolwork where you're going in and you're getting A's or you're getting B's or, you know, you're doing generally fairly well and try to apply it to your test prep approach. And like you say, there are many different ways you can go about that. It doesn't have to be taking a class. Um, it could be working with a tutor. It could, if you are disciplined enough, it could be doing some stuff on your own. Um, but you shouldn't take that diagnostic score as, well, that's as good as it's going to be. So um, I think that is very good advice. Uh, all right. So what do you say to the, the idea, and I, I, I'm guessing it might be a little too early to say, but that it's easier to get a higher score on the new SAT than it was to get a higher score on the old one? Yeah, and that that is how it looks initially right now. So what we've seen with the new SAT section scores is it looks like there's a there's a slight inflation between what you would get on let's say a new SAT math versus an old SAT math. So if you score a 650 on the old SAT math, that will look like a 700 on the new SAT. Mm. So initially, we see that these scores look a little bit higher. And we don't know why the college board um, scored it that way or, or made those changes to the new SAT. But I think that's important to note when you're taking a practice test on the new SAT that um, if you're getting a 700 on math on the new SAT, that's, that's about equivalent to a 650 on the old SAT. And, and the same goes for the reading section as well. 
So the, the scores might look higher initially, but it's always important to go back to the concordance tables to see how they compare to the old SAT and how they compare to the ACT. And there's a great app you can download on, on iPhone, which is the, the score converter app that College Board released. Um, and you can plug your practice test numbers in or your official score with the SAT in to see how those scores compare to the old SAT and the ACT. Yeah, and I think just one important point that I would like to add to all of that is that if over time the SAT continues, the new SAT continues to be scored significantly higher than the old one, um, for those of you out there looking at very highly selective schools, my guess is that the expectation levels will only start to rise in terms of what they're going to consider a quote-unquote good score. Because if a huge chunk of the applicant pool starts turning in scores that are significantly higher than before, um, it's going to make those little seemingly small leaps from a 700 to a 710 to a 720 start to look large. Um, That would be my guess. I don't know this for a fact. I just kind of drawing on my own personal experience and reading files at the University of Pennsylvania. um, That's going to be something we're going to want to keep an eye on as well. Um, Sure. And I I imagine that admissions people initially would also be looking at these concordance charts mm -hmm. um, to kind of figure out what these new SAT scores mean. And so they'll see immediately that, you know, this 700 is equivalent to what a 650 used to be. Exactly. And and there probably will be a little bit of that that you can't kind of get away from the the fact that a 700 looks better than a 650 at you know and just in general, but I would agree that my guess is too that they will be looking at those concordance tables and really understanding what they mean. Um so we have more uh, myths and, and things we're going to talk about, uh, the SAT versus the ACT, um, but we're going to go to a break first, and then we'll come back and talk some more. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. Go join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth 
Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. Before the break, we were talking to Sean Quinn, who is Director of Tutoring uh, at Arbor Bridge. And um, we're going to get back to our conversation uh, about the ACT versus the SAT. But before we do that, I did want to quickly mention um, that Arbor Bridge is offering our listeners a special deal when you mention the Getting In podcast. Um, The easiest thing is probably just to go directly to Sean. And his email address is Sean, S-E-A-N, at arborbridge, A-R-B-O-R-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. So Sean at arborbridge.com. If you email him and you let him know you heard him on um, the Getting In podcast, um, he can share all the details about the special offer for our listeners. Um, But Sean, we're back. And um, over the break, you and I were talking a little bit about maybe uh, helping our readers understand what the big differences are between the SAT and the ACT, maybe digging in a little bit to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the biggest differences is the section length. So on, on the new SAT, the reading section, for example, is 65 minutes long with five passages, which is a significant uh, increase in section length from the ACT reading which is 35 minutes. What that means for the student is that they might require a little bit more endurance and, and practice in, in getting through a full SAT reading section. Another key difference is the time per question. And, and we touched on this in the last segment, but I think it is, it is something important to keep in mind is that there's over a minute per question on the SAT and under a minute on the SAT, on the ACT. Sorry. So the ACT is a faster test. A third big difference is that there's a no calculator section on the SAT. So this does become a consideration when we have students that um, are, are more reliant on their calculator. So that's something to make sure that your student is testing out in the practice test or diagnostic phase first. The fourth big difference is the reading section. So the reading on the SAT, there's an emphasis on reading in the math section as well. There are more, far more words per question on the SAT math section than on the ACT math. So a lot of times this comes, you know, this, this could affect international students or students who, who struggle in the reading section that also might apply on the math section to some extent. Additionally, the passage difficulty on the SAT. 
So there are passages on the SAT from the 1800s. There's a on on the practice test that were released. There are there's a Charlotte Bronte passage from 1857. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Elizabeth Stanton passage from the 1830s. So that's something to consider on the SAT reading is that even though you're having more time per uh, question on the SAT reading, you're dealing with older, more archaic passages that, that could be difficult for students. Um, the fifth big difference is that there's a science section on the ACT. Um, and, you know, I think there, that's another myth uh, that's about the science section of ACT that it is testing real science. It's actually more a test on how to read and interpret graphs quickly. Right. And then the last uh, big difference is the essay. So the essay on the ACT asks you to incorporate three perspectives. Um, it's very similar to the the old SAT and the, the old ACT essay, but the new SAT essay is more literary analysis. Right. So for students who haven't done a whole lot of that, that writing section may prove to be more difficult than an essay where you're writing about three different perspectives on an issue, which might feel a little bit more familiar. Uh, and of course, that's something you guys work with students on. I know when way back when in the dark ages, which actually is not quite that long ago, they introduced the whole writing section for the SAT. There was this big proclamation that you couldn't prep for this writing section. And of course, um, very clearly and easily, that was disproven. You absolutely could prep for that section, just like you can prep for any section. Um, and you guys work with students and you help them prep for those writing sections, regardless of which one they're going to do. But the prep must be different for the SAT writing versus for the ACT writing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one of the big differences. One of the things that is the same is that the SAT essay is no longer included in the writing score. Mm-hmm. So both the SAT essay and the ACT essay are apart from the composite scores. Right, right, because the SAT has gone back to a 1600, whereas for a while now it's been a 2400 because you got a separate score on writing and it was required. You couldn't take the test without taking the writing. Now it's optional, um, and that's something else that we don't know yet is which schools are going to require that optional section. It looks like more schools are making it optional than had made um, the ACT optional in the past. So the ACT, I mean, so now I'm getting myself into to confusing territory, but the ACT writing section has always been optional, but the SAT writing section was required. And as a result, a lot of schools, um, particularly at the highly selective level, had said, had required the ACT writing section because they wanted in some way, shape or form to sort of compare apples to oranges. But now that the SAT has gone optional in the writing section, what we're starting to see is that there are some schools who are saying, now we're going to make both sections optional both the writing on the ACT and the writing on the SAT. And I don't know if you're hearing stuff about that, Sean, or have a different perspective that you wanted to share on that piece of things. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're hearing, too. Uh, I think Columbia just came out last Mm -hmm. week, and Penn also said that they're uh, making the essay optional, or the the SAT writing section optional, um, Mm Which is a, a big departure because the you know the Ivy Leagues they're the first two Ivy Leagues to say that they're making the SAT essay optional. Yeah, absolutely, and it'll be interesting to see who follows. 
But at the risk of, you know, I don't want us to be too focused on highly selective, so I realize I brought it up, but I will say to our listeners that many, many, many colleges out there are not going to require the optional writing section. So I always think if you have the choice, you might as well take it because it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. However, if you know there's no chance that you're applying to any school that's going to require that writing section, then I think you should feel comfortable not taking it. Um, uh, but just be sure before you make that decision because nothing's worse than thinking you're done with your testing and then having to go back and take it again because you're missing something that the school requires. Um, what about, uh, I think, you know, one thing I'd love to, it's not really a myth, it's more about, um, you know, when, when does this process ideally start? So certainly many of our listeners are rising seniors, but we have many, many listeners who are at all stages, um, lots of parents listening, lots of students who are in the younger grades. In your opinion, um, when's the ideal time to start thinking about this process, take the diagnostic tests, um, and then start the prepping process? Yeah, I think ideally... The summer after sophomore year is a great time to mm-hmm. take these diagnostics. Um, the summer or fall, summer after sophomore year or fall of junior year are, are great times, I think, to, to get a feel for which test is a better fit and then begin preparation uh, for either a winter um, test date or a spring of junior year test date. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I really encourage as many families as possible to be done with the testing by the end of junior year, if at all possible, because, you know, not knowing what your test scores are going to be adds a certain layer of uncertainty to things that, you know, really impacts how many decisions you can make over the summer, how, um, you know, when you don't know what your final test score is going to be in October of your senior year, it can make it difficult to really fully settle on a list of colleges because, you know, well, this school, if I do better, then I might apply to this school. But if I don't, then I'm going to take this school off my list. It's just, it adds a layer that we we love to try to get away from. And so I think your advice of when to start makes perfect sense with, you know, with the goal in mind of trying to get into those tests um, in the first or the second half of junior year. Um, What's your advice around how many times, um, you know, I have my admissions perspective on it, but I, from a test prep perspective, you know, do you see a fall off in terms of the ability to improve scores after a certain number of times testing? Yes, we do, certainly. So on, on the first test, the first official test, um, just looking at ACT numbers because we don't have the new SAT numbers yet, but we generally see, um, regardless of starting score, from a diagnostic to the first official test, we see the largest jump. Got it. After that, after the the first official test, um, the second official test will be a, a smaller jump, and then the third smaller uh, than the second test. So we recommend about two to three times. Um, two times is probably ideal to take mm-hmm. those official tests. Yeah, I, and I would agree. And from an admissions perspective, um, I think that, you know, when I worked at Penn and I used to stand up in front of groups and talk about our testing policy, you know, at Penn, our policy was we really don't care how many times you take the test. However, studies have shown that two to three times is probably enough and your scores don't change very much. And that seems to dovetail with what you're actually seeing. 
Um, I can think of a handful of cases where a student took it four times um, and did improve. But when I say handful, I really mean I can think of two times when I saw a student do that. But um, the rest of the time, there was no significant improvement, and that ended up just being a wasted afternoon. I think, again, it really depends on how far off you are from your goal. There's so many other things that go into it that I can't really make the blanket statement. You should never take it four times, but I think you should assume that three is probably the limit and two might be just fine. Um, So another question um, that I have for you is, let's say you decided on the SAT, you prepped for the SAT, you took the SAT two times, and you are just not getting where you want to go. You know, you have some schools in mind, and there are some scores that you're hoping to achieve, and you're not getting anywhere close on the SAT. Do you think there is ever a time where a student might consider switching from, in that case, the SAT to the ACT, or in another case, in the reverse? Yes, absolutely. I, I think there are points that make sense that there, there's a switch to the SAT to the ACT and, and vice versa. And the good news is that now that the tests have gotten a lot closer, preparation for one will aid in how you do on, on, on the other. Mm-hmm. So I think a couple things to think about in terms of switching from the SAT to the ACT is that if the no calculator math section is a weakness, or the literary analysis on the essay, are, those are two, if, if those are two things that are holding up the student, um, or if the student has extra time accommodations on both tests, which are, are better on the ACT, I think it might make sense to consider a switch from the SAT to the ACT if you're not achieving your, your, your score goals. Okay. And is there a reverse way to think about it from going from ACT to SAT? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think some, you know, some of the considerations involved in switching from the ACT to the SAT would be if the student is really strong in math and the no calculator math section won't, won't be a factor, and if the student has high reading accuracy when taking an ACT section untimed but struggles on the timing, issues, on, on the timing of the reading and science sections on the ACT. Also, if, if that science section in general poses a problem for, for the student on the ACT, I think all of these factors might, might uh, add up to, to an SAT change. Got it. Right. So if it's not just, and I think that's really great to have some specific things to point to because sometimes it's just, well, I'm not doing well on this, so I'm going to try the other one. And there might be value in that too, but I like that there are some specific things you can point to and say, I'm seeing X, Y, and Z. And that to me says you may do better on this other test because the reverse of, of course, I'm not really seeing anything that would indicate the other test is going to be an improvement for you. So you can try it, but you just may it may just be that this is where you're going to be at your testing. Um, Sean, thank you so much. I have one other thing to address, and, and for everyone who's listening, you may be thinking that we're sort of talking about these tests and choosing which is the right one, and the one thing that we haven't mentioned is which one the colleges prefer. Um, so I'm going to use this opportunity to uh, say something that I've been saying since I started at Penn and since I have been at College Coach, and that is colleges do not care 
they don't care what you get your good score on. Um, so if you get a great score on the ACT, awesome. That's what they want to see, a great score. If you get it on the SAT, great. Not better, just great, right? They don't care. And if you all could go out and spread the word to every single person that you know, I would be really happy because I see this myth persist and persist and persist and it drives me nuts. Um, so anyway, I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, Sean, before we um, say goodbye to our listeners? No, I mean, I, I totally agree about that myth. And I think it, you know, happens on the coast. There's a preference for the SAT. And, you know, I, I didn't even hear about the ACT when I, I was growing up. So I think that's, yep. that's great to, um, to, to, to say that both tests are, are considered equal in the eyes of, of colleges. Um, no, I just want to thank you so much, Beth, for having me at Arbor Bridge. We're always happy to do to help, help students out with these free diagnostic tests to help them decide which is a better fit. And we do have a, a summer special um, on our 20-hour tutoring program. If you mention this podcast um, and email me at sean at arborbridge.com, we'll offer you two free hours of tutoring. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. Really appreciate it. When we get back, we're going to have office hours, and we're going to be answering your college finance questions. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You've heard of good things coming in packages. Well, maybe there's a little more to that saying. But when you think about it, packaging is one of the most important things that can represent your business. Tune into Ditch the Box with host David Marinak. Each week, we'll discuss flexible packaging, marketing, sales, and how it all comes together in one container. Lower costs, increased margins. Listen to the show. It might just save you a ton. Ditch the Box is heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Office Hours is a new segment where we're answering your questions, we're addressing pressing issues in admissions and financial aid, uh, and we're going to be hosting a series of virtual summer workshops uh, as part of Office Hours, and those are going to begin on June 30th. So don't forget, you want to tune into that show. But right now, um, we're going to be answering your questions about college finance. And here to answer those questions, because I am not a college finance expert, is former Babson and RISD financial aid officer and my college coach colleague, Michelle Clifton. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, appreciate you joining us today. So um, our listeners have been really great about sending in tons and tons of questions, which I very much appreciate. Um, so let's just get jump right in. And the first question comes from Toshiba, who asks, how do we apply for grants on time? Uh, okay. So the FAFSA and the CSS profile are now open on the same day each year. So on October 1st, they open up for the next academic year. So if your child's a junior this upcoming year or younger, then the time to apply for any funding, whether it's federal, state, institutional, grant or scholarship funding, is late fall, early winter of their senior year. So you definitely want to research the financial aid application deadline of each school and make sure you're completing the FAFSA and the CSS profile if it's required about two weeks prior to the earlier deadline so that you're making sure that it's being submitted for all schools on time. Got it. And then just to keep uh, an eye out, because some colleges will also request supplemental documentation like tax returns. So just be sure to respond to these requests in a timely manner so that the financial aid can get um, finalized. And then hopefully this isn't the case in this question, but if your child is graduating high school now and going to college in the fall, if you haven't already applied, um, do so right now. Um, you have missed, you've likely missed some deadlines, but you can still try to apply. And then um, if your child is applying for outside scholarships, those, those deadlines really vary. So be sure to monitor deadlines for that. So you never know. There might be something out there um, right. that you could still apply to if you are last minute. And if you're not last minute, it's never too early to start looking. So Exactly. <laughs> um, all right, so our second question comes from Bernadette, who asks, what is the best way to appeal for financial aid? Uh, okay, we get that question a lot. Yep. So as far as the actual process, so financial aid officers really love documentation because they're actually audited each year, and they want to be fair in their assessment of appeals. So if you're appealing because you have high medical expenses, make sure you're gathering copies of medical bills, or if you had a recent job loss, get a copy of your most recent pay stub, termination notice, and the statement of your unemployment benefits. So whatever your documentation is, put this together with a letter and explain that there's a special circumstance that you'd really appreciate if they could consider. Um, this might have just been me, but I was not a fan of reviewing super long letters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you know, I really just wanted the facts and the figures to see if there was anything I could do um, to change our analysis. But I didn't want to read a ton of fluff. Um, as long as you convey the message that, you know, your child is 
really excited about this school or if they're already a student there, if they really want to stay there, um, that's enough. You don't have to go pages and pages long. Um, the financial aid offices are often really busy, so just be mindful of their time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, less is almost always more when it comes to this process, um, and that's a great example. A couple of paragraphs agree, versus yeah. a couple of pages, right? I used to say that I got a book uh, for an appeal if it was, you know, yes. a few pages long, and it just didn't make me happy. So, yes, anyway, <laughs> as far as, like, actually who to send that to, if you can find out who your child's assigned financial aid counselor is, I think that's the best way, um, and send them an, e- an email directly to them. If you don't receive a confirmation, say maybe within a week, then it's definitely okay to reach out to them by phone. Um, I personally found it easier to deny appeals that I had only communicated with someone by email. So mm-hmm. making that human, human connection can, can help sometimes. Um, and uh, if you happen to get a quick response with a denial, but really think you have a circumstance that should be considered, don't give up and uh, give them a call. And, you know, at minimum, they can help you understand why it was denied, and if they can reconsider. Got it. And I think, um, just to clarify, you want to send that packet of information and then call. How long would you wait between sending the info and calling? I would say like a week is probably a good amount of time. Okay, great. Uh, all right, we ready for this, the next question? Or yeah, I was going to say, if you want to hear more about appealing financially, we did a whole segment on this. I actually yep. was the one that um, did it on March 17th. So that's back in the archives. All right. Check out the archives, March 17th, 2016. Um, We probably have some archives from 2015 on um, appealing financial aid awards as well. We also have archives stuff um, segments on uh, negotiating a better package once you have uh, a package from one school, but you really want to go to another. We have some stuff um, on that as well. The archives are awesome. All right. The next one, this next one is um, a really good one. And... um, I, I would bet that people might ha- get into this um, predicament without realizing it more than we might know. Um, anyway, this comes from Phyllis, who says, my daughter entered her first year of college last fall. However, she added an extra class, which a- included a lab and cost an additional fee of $1,500 for this class. We were unaware that she'd be charged for adding a class, and now she can't sign up for classes until that balance is at $100 or below. A late fee is being added on every month, I'm una- and I'm unable to pay the monthly payment that they're asking. Is there anything that I can do? Oh, gosh. This brings back memories. So <laughs> we would always get people calling saying, can you take me off hold? But they still had a balance. We couldn't do that. Yep. So, yeah, this is a bummer. If you, I would say first start out by reaching out to the student accounts office just to see if there's anything, any wiggle room on that monthly payment. Um, but if not, there is an option. So you could have your daughter apply for a private student loan and one that allows for a borrower to have a past due balance. So there are a few lenders that offer this. I was researching it for someone a couple weeks ago. Um, and it actually sounds like you're coming up on almost a year where it's past due. So the options are going to be really limited if you go over a year old. So um, back when I had checked, most lenders had only uh, only let you go like a couple months of a past due balance. So, uh, But I do remember that Sally May, if I remember correctly, allowed a, a past due balance up to 365 days old. 
Um, so I would say check with the financial aid office for a list of loans that allow past due balances um, just to confirm that. Got and it. if you're going to do this, definitely apply sooner than later. And just know that your daughter will likely um, be required to include a creditworthy co-signer on the application as well. Right. So, Mike, uh, a larger question that this raises for me, because I remember when I was in college, I had a minimum number of credits that I was required to take to maintain my full-time status, but I could really, there wasn't a limit. Um, I don't recall there being a limit to the number of classes I could take. Is it common that schools will charge students more if they take, say, four, five classes versus four, um, or is that a policy at some schools but not at others? So I can speak from at Babson, it used to be years ago, students could take up to, I think it was 17 or 18, and if they took more than that, then they were charged, but they actually recently changed the policy um, in my last year or two there where students could take up to 20 credits at the flat rate of tuition Mm. um, to kind of be a little bit more generous, so that, that policy can vary. Yeah, I think that's key. So it's really important to understand that policy because in theory, if you could take up to 20 credits in a semester, you might be able to finish early and knock a a year or a semester's worth of work off. But that doesn't work. If you're going to be charged extra for those credits, you're going to pay the same amount regardless, right? So um, important to understand what the college's individual policy is. Okay. Um, Our next one comes from, and I very much apologize because I am almost definitely going to get this name wrong, but Enkiruka, who asks, how can I find affordable, good universities for my child who does not qualify for need-based aid and may not get enough merit aid? Okay. Tricky one. I would say, yeah, that is tricky, but I, I always say making sure that the college list is balanced. So there's lots of different types of schools on there. So you're not just looking at one type. So, you know, the in-state public, out-of-state public colleges, various different private schools, and at varying levels of selectivity based Mm -hmm. on your child's academic profile. And so make sure your student's not just applying to his or her REACH schools because those are the ones that are not going to be offering merit funding um, to your student. So Mm -hmm. I think the best thing a student can do to maximize their chance of scholarship is to apply to, to colleges where he or she is a strong student. So say maybe the top 20% or even higher. Um, uh, a place that really wants your child to attend is most likely going to give them the most money. Right. And I think um, probably one thing to think about is a definition of a good university. Um, right. I, I don't know that this um, listener is from the U.S. We do have quite a few who listen from abroad, but I know that we can get caught up in a little bit of that well, that's not a good school or that is a good school or that's a private school, so that's definitely a better school than a public school. And I think the definition of good is really what is the best fit for your child? Where can your child go, be successful, and graduate within a reasonable frame of time? And for me, I think a reasonable frame of time when I start paying for it for my own son is going to be four years. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I don't really want to be on the five- or six-year plan um, I don't know many parents who do, um, but for those for whom costs are a concern, I think that's something to think about. And, and then having the ability to get a job when they get out of school, 
I am not a big believer that you have to major in something specific in order to guarantee a job, but I know that that doesn't mean that that's how everyone thinks about it. But there are so many different opportunities in this country that to be too narrow in focus is going to hamper you probably finding the best affordable option for your family. So be a little bit more generous with that definition of good. I totally agree. Um, So we have time, excuse me, for one more question. Okay. Um, And so the next one, um, I don't know who this is from. It's not attributed. So we'll just say this is from one of our listeners who says, my daughter is enrolling in college this fall. When will I receive a bill and when and how do I set up the monthly payment plan? Okay. So usually colleges will bill for the fall semester in like late June, early July. So any day now. Um, And the payment is often due in early August or somewhere around there. So, and then payment plans are usually able to be set up by the payment deadline, but sometimes there are actually opportunities where you're better off signing up early. So, I can give one example from my past experience at Babson. We would bill for the fall semester around, um, around July 1st. Payment was always due around August 1st, but we actually had a 10-month payment plan for the full academic year that started in June. So in order to take advantage of that and not have to play catch up, you had to set up the plan in June with estimated figures. Got it. Uh, but, okay. But then we also had an eight-month plan that you could set up in August, so that was great for anyone who had not been proactive. Got but, it. Yeah, either way, I think it's, it's totally okay to con- reach out to the student accounts office, you know, ask what the payment plan options are, and then they can help you get an estimate on your balance if you need it. Okay. Michelle, thank you so much. Um, so the, the bottom line is for people who are about to start paying for college, if you haven't seen that bill, it should be coming any day. And if you don't see it, you're going to want to call and get it. Um, you don't want to just say, well, Jade hasn't come. I guess college is free because it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <Good point. laughs> um, so, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to thank Sean also and a few important things to note before we wrap up. Uh, next week, Ian Fisher is going to be hosting, and we're introducing our Schools Out Application Workshop series, so you do not want to miss that. We're also going to um, take a peek inside the Yale Admissions Office. One of my colleagues, Amy Alexander, is a former Yale Admissions Officer, and she's going to talk to us about what happens and how they make their decisions there. Um, We're also going to be talking about how to choose the right student loan. Um, Just a reminder, if you want a special deal on tutoring at Arbor Bridge, you want to email Sean at Sean, S-E-A-N, at arborbridge.com and tell him that you heard him on our podcast. Um, If you have listener questions and you want them answered during office hours, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, and we have our great archives. You don't want to miss those. Lots of interesting stuff in there on a lot of the things we talked about today. Uh, and you can also get free downloads of the show on iTunes. And please rate us while you're there. Um, but don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.